I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-host is Mike Philbrick of Resolve Asset Management, SEZC. Welcome to Raise Your Average. Our guest today is Mark Noble, Executive Vice President and Educator-in-Chief at Horizons ETFs. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to get a chance to hang out with you for a while. Yeah, thank you. It's always great to hang out with you, Pierre and Mike. Mark, it's been quite a year. You know, you and I spoke about a year ago. It's hard to believe that it was a year ago already. To kick things off, uh, why don't you take us back to a year ago and uh, tell us what kind of a year it's been for you, and then we can get to some of those. Uh, can we? Can we uh, also mark in that? Can you just give us a little background of uh, who you are, where you work, what your role right, is there, so that uh, no most people will be aware of that? But there are some <clears throat> that, that won't be. So weave that into what uh, Piers asked as well. Yeah. So I, you know, my role is executive vice president of ETF strategy at Horizon ETFs. I'm not entirely sure what I do in that role. I mean, I do a lot of things. Um, uh, I, I tend to just focus a lot on the the sort of education and product strategy. So I work a lot on product development. I actually know what I do, but it, it can be seem nebulous for people that they're outside the firm. Uh, I focus a lot on the product development side uh, and then talking a lot on sort of working with how do these products fit for a portfolio? How do they fit for an investor? We have over 95 ETFs. So it kind of falls to uh, me and my team of people that work with me to kind of curate and determine, you know, what is kind of working right now from a product perspective and then working with education and and investors, especially a lot of self-directed investors on where do this stuff fit from their investment goals. Uh, In terms of my background, it's a little unconventional. Um, I was uh, a journalist before I entered the ETF industry. So I started as a writer, uh, writing about ETFs as a self-directed investor uh, working for a number of publications. And once I kind of saw the potential for ETFs, uh, I decided I actually wanted to jump over and, and get in, in on an ETF firm. So I started from that end as opposed to the portfolio or finance side, uh, which kind of puts me more kind of in a storytelling kind of ethos and how I approach things, which is a little bit different in that I'm not coming from someone who's actually managed money. I'm, I'm coming more for the experience of someone who's just really interested in the technology of investing and then how it relates to how investors build their portfolios. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what's happened over the last year, you know, we, we, it's actually astounding to me um, how well uh, a year it's gone for most asset management firms. Like my firm, for example, last year and, and coming into this year, we raised probably close to about $7 billion, uh, almost doubled in size in terms of our asset growth. And um, we've seen a lot of other ETF firms sort of similarly see just absolutely astounding growth. Uh, we continue to see record inflows into ETFs. And it's really being driven by uh, what is sort of an inflection point in that we're having a lot of new investors come into the particularly the equity market. Um, so I, I'm looking at a lot of you know data for investor economics, for example. And uh, you probably have about three times as many self-directed accounts opening up as you are direct accounts. And, um, you know, historically, if I was to try to put this at a kind of a, a similar time period, you sort of have to go back to sort of like 1994, 1995, when the boomers started to hit sort of their peak earning years to see this kind of um, movement of new investors into the complex. And I don't know 
if it's the pandemic that started it, but certainly it's driven a lot of new investors into the market in sort of, and, and, and demographically it's 25 to 40. So younger skewing, probably more like 25 to 35. Um, and it seems to have brought in enough uh, additional gasoline to the equity fire that it started to move valuations and move the market. And now you see traditional sort of retail investors also jumping on. So, you know, we got stats last week that, for example, that uh, more money was raised in equity funds in North America, over $500 billion in the last five months than has been raised in the last 12 years uh, in terms of the the acceleration of growth into equities. Wow. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of it is being driven by this small little snowball of new investors, which, you know, Mike will know more about, but really cascades into, you know, a, a larger sort of movement as they kind of move algorithmic trading and valuations and everything else. It's interesting. Where do you think that is it? Is it their earnings power? So, so obviously that cohort is sort of the millennial cohort that you're talking right. about to some degree. They're coming into higher income earning years. Do you think it's their savings that is that is being um, sort of invested? Are they borrowing to invest? How? Where has the money come from? I guess is what I'm asking. Any, any insights it's, on that? Yeah, it's it's sheer volume of small dollar accounts. So, like when you look at GameStop, for example, I think they estimated at some point in time that something like 24 percent of Americans own that stock. But to give you some like like equivalent stats, it's like seven or eight percent own ETFs in general. Right. So you have this huge right. cultural zeitgeist happening around investing. And it and, and again, these aren't people that are putting 10, 20 million dollars into these. Right. Uh, if we look at stock ownership in the United States, 70 percent of the stocks are owned by institutions, pensions, you know, RSP accounts, IRA accounts. But if you take the smaller segment of smaller cap stocks and you start putting, you know, three, four million investors at a thousand dollars a pop into some of these stocks, it starts to move. And then algorithmically, everything's algorithmically on Wall Street. So if I start to see someone moving the needle, even if it's, you know, three, four million small investors moving the needle on these mid cap stocks, they start to move really fast and it becomes self-perpetuating. Uh, and we definitely see that in the ETF market where, you know, the single largest growth in ETFs this year has been overwhelmingly thematic ETFs, which have increased over 400%. Yeah. Uh, and gone from $26 billion last year to uh, over $140 billion in assets under management in North America this year. That's amazing. That's a, so <clears throat> remarkable, yeah. yeah so, so you have a, a bit of a feedback loop, and I, I'm, I'm going to guess or postulate that some of that is driven by the gamification and the, the broad sort of access to markets in a way that has been democratized, made easy, made fun with respect to either Robinhood or other um, account opportunities where the, the account opening process is very easy. It's on your phone. It's easy to understand. You're given access to tools that have largely been the domain of institutions for a long period of time, and you're, you're given them very quickly. Do you think that's played a role or is, is that just me uh, dreaming? Sure. I mean, certainly, I think ease of access has to have come into play um, in terms of the fact that you can, you know, do commission-free trading. You can buy fractional shares on Robinhood um, mm -hmm. and fractional yeah. shares on other brokerages. Uh, I also just think that, you know, again, I don't think this is unique, right? Historically, if we go back to 1994, 1998, everybody was a genius in the market, right? Like, do you know what I mean? When it came to generating returns. Sure. And, and, and we see the same thing with Canadian housing, right? Which is... 
the leverage on people's balance sheets with their real estate is is crazy, but nobody's complaining because they've had 164% returns over the last decade or more on their housing, right? Or, you know, and yeah. it just absolutely astounding numbers. So I think it's a combination of what you're saying, Mike. Again, it's hard to know without surveying all this, but a combination of what you're mm. saying on the gamification, as well as the fact that nobody's been penalized yet, right? Nobody's really lost right. money <laughs> in the equity market to do otherwise. Yeah. So you just have more money piling on as, you know, I would say the uh, financial literacy litmus test gets lower and lower and lower. And the number of Instagram influencers making millions of dollars goes up and up and up. So. And it's, it's interesting on the, on the point of thematic, I, I've certainly always been a fan. And, and I think the, the sort of the typical way it's referred to is core and explore. Right. Um, and it, and it, it kind of comes down to, or I, I'd like your opinion on this. Um, but to my mind, it comes down to what's the investor's objective. So if the investor's objective is sort of outsized, differentiated returns, um, well, then they would have to take a very different approach. And if, if we think about market capitalization weight indexing, which has also had quite a run and, you know, as much as thematic investing has grown dramatically, if we look at that vis-a-vis -vis the money that's gone to Vanguard and BlackRock, it's still relatively small when you compare the total inflows right. um, to ETFs, I think. And, and so the idea of thematic the thematic investing to me is is quite a, it's it's a good one in that if someone's goal is to categorically outperform indexes or or want to do something different than indexes you have to take a different approach and one has to uh, respect market capitalization indexing for what it is and that is simply that whatever has happened in the past will continue in the future and whatever changes exist in the index, well, they're going to change and there will be some waves of change, but you're going to be participating in all those changes. But in the end of the day, it's saying, here's the capitalization weight and you should own that. And it kind of skews to quite heavily to what's happened in the past. So if you think of um, some of the top weights in the index today versus the top weight of Exxon in the index in 2008, it certainly you know wasn't the best forward return to buy the index, obviously changing it does, or adapting to the change ahead of time, if you could do that, uh, would. But thematic investing seems to me is, is taking a look at the world and seeing where there is the opportunity for pretty significant change that is going to create some sort of disequilibrium. Right. Right. And, and I know, you know, actually you and Horizons have had quite quite a journey, uh, not just recently in this, you know, being the first movers on marijuana ETFs as an example. And so when, when you guys are thinking about um, what's the next thematic um, uh, ETF to pursue or what the, what's the next item that you think will be widely adopted and thereby be a successful launch at, at Horizons, what do you look for in that, in that sense? What are you guys looking for to be those large, uh, disequilibrium events where potentially they're underpriced and there's an opportunity for investors to participate and where you think you can offer a solution that's going to help them do so. Well, these are all really great points, Mike. And, and the thing when we're looking at thematic ETFs and thematic investing in, in general is you have to realize there's a boom-bust cycle to every type of disruption. So if we even go back to the 1870s, right, we build the railroad which opens up a whole number of economic possibilities, but it also crashes the U.S. economy, okay? Right. Um, because of the amount of money that goes into it, right? You end up with the, with, the, with the railroad. 
Um, you know, if I go back to the late 1990s, we get the internet, right? But the point mm-hmm. is, if I go back to you in 1999 and I say, look, I got a company, we have sort of a 70, 80% market share in mobile phone technology where you can email, you can write down what you want, you can send emails, you can, you know, wear it cool on the side of your pants, right? With your pleated <laughs> pants. Um, what do you think? Oh God, that is close. This to sounds, home. this sounds awesome. <laughs> That's I'm going to cool. buy Palm Pilot, right? Yeah. So you end up just piling into Palm Pilot, yeah. right? I was going to say, okay. it's a little close to home. Yeah, yeah. So, so okay, but but we're all there. We get the idea that this is real technology. There's something yeah. to this, but you have this massive boom-bust cycle. If I put my money into Palm Pilot and then afterwards, you know, RIM, which is a totally different company now, you know, you went through that boom-bust cycle. Um, yeah. The idea behind thematic investing is really to just take the most basic tenet of investing, which is diversifying risk, and then going after that theme. Because if I'd own the NASDAQ 100 instead of buying, you know, pets.com and amazon.com and AltaVista and AOL and Google, some of those are winners, some of those are gone. If I pick the losers, it's game over. If I pick the winners, absolutely, you're, you know, you've done extraordinarily well. But even the best foresight of the best business strategists would not be able to predict that. So a thematic ETF diversifies your risk and allows you to invest in that theme. But you're absolutely right. It's got to be in the explore. So the first thing I tell people before they want to invest in marijuana is they say, are you willing to lose everything? Well, the answer is no. But I mean, at the same token, that's how it has to fit into your portfolio. Because if I look at them, you know, our Horizons Marijuana Index ETF, there's a good possibility that maybe only two or three of these companies are around in five to six years even though the marijuana industry itself, I do believe will probably be about 150, $160 billion business globally. And, you know, it's already yeah. a $40 billion business globally, but determining who's going to win with that is, is, is not, you know, is not there. So that is really the key with thematic ETF investing. Uh, my big concern and over last year, as someone who looks at thematic ideas is that a lot of these themes have gotten way ahead of where they should be from a valuation standpoint. And that the ETFs themselves are wagging the dog. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, I don't want to name names, but there's one very extraordinary large thematic ETF mm-hmm. where it has over a 10% ownership in 26 companies in its portfolio. Arc? I think you're talking about ARC. I mean, yeah, yes. I, well, I am talking about it. You know, and I got to be careful about how I mention things. And you can't very say forward it. thinking, yeah, very forward thinking <laughs> strategy that has a massive amount of ownership, concentration ownership. In yeah. these stocks, because they tend to have a smaller cap. Even our marijuana ETF, at a certain point in time, when it was over a billion dollars, it's owning you know some of the largest shareholders in some of these companies. So as more money pours into the ETF, it brings the valuations up, and then more money pours into the ETF, and it becomes circuitous. Um, what we're seeing, though, is as I go back to that discussion around self-directed investors, is they're really the ones that are starting to drive this up, and so we're getting you know valuations that seem very divorced from reality. On a lot of these themes, which, you know, a lot of these companies, like even in marijuana in the Canadian LP space, they're trading at negative valuations. They're trading at negative earnings. Sorry, not negative valuations, negative earnings. And so you have what you have all this money coming in Two, three billion dollars has gone into marijuana ETFs. And it really has sort of divorced from reality some of the fundamentals on this. So that's my big concern. Um, again, it seems to be setting up for a bus cycle. And early at the end of the day, these themes, which are, you know, Supported by science and economics, whether it's growth of marijuana usage, whether it's growth of genomics, space exploration, these are real themes that are transformative. But 
as we all know with all things in investment, at what cost is it worth getting into? And right now, it, it seems extraordinarily high. Well, it's interesting you mentioned yeah. that because it, it. Sorry, Pierre, go ahead if you. No, no, you something. go ahead. <laughs> um, so, so the, the 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 construction of a theme is a very interesting thing, right? The idea of a theme when you started uh, marijuana or some of the sort of more unique uh, transformational new ideas. That's one way you can you can get a thematic position. I think the other sort of contrasting that with uh, another different type of theme, for example, uranium. Right. Um, under owned, under, under researched, uh, Fukushima esque, uh, cloud hanging over it. Yet fundamentally certain drivers and certain structural changes are occurring where the last 15 years of the experience one has, or maybe it's less than 15 years, but last 15 years of the experience of the investor in that field might be changing. Correct. And, and I, and I don't know that those valuations re- would reflect that same sort of u- euphoria or not. But what are your thoughts there? Well, I, Nick Picard, who works with us, focuses a lot on uranium and we have Canada's only uranium ETF, uh, H-U-R-A. Um, mm. and yeah, his view is we could, uranium should be hitting about $50, right? Uh, you know, I think it's down around, you know, 22, um, and, or even below that. Um, the, really, the reason being is as we move to clean tech energy, particularly in Asia, uh, there's simply not enough supply um, for uranium. A lot of these mines shut down over the last decade, mm-hmm. which has completely undermined this growth. And then you have the U.S. government in the last year actually suggesting that um, you know they want to have a safe and secure uh, stockpile of uranium, which means that you can really only buy uranium from Canada. So if that's if that's the case. And, and you take out, you know, Russian sources and, and Kazakhstan sources of uranium, then you really reduce the amount of pool in North America of uranium that could be purchased. So you're absolutely right. You can end up with pockets of, of huge valuation. I guess uranium kind of is an outlier in that it's not new, right? I mean, we're talking about well, a very just a old different, technology. Yeah, yeah it's just a different play. play on it. So people shouldn't yeah. forget or investors shouldn't forget that thematic investing isn't just about, oh, it's the next new thing or it's a demographic right. story. Right. It, it, it's, it's a function of both. There is it's the Overton window. Right. That, that the way that things go through the general zeitgeist of the public, where at one point they're considered ridiculous, ludicrous and unthinkable. And as they pass through that window, they become fully acceptable and obvious. Right. And so I think what we're trying to tie in here is the idea that, well, there's a theme, but there's also a valuation. What am I paying for that theme? Right. Right. And, and from an, from an outside view, What's the potential growth? What am I paying in, in wherever I am in that growth cycle? Am I overpaying? Should I be overpaying? You know, there's lots of cases where uh, in certain thematic areas, you could not have got in had you wait to pay a reasonable multiple. And so, see, yeah, I, I, think I just think like, you know, we've had this, you know, 10, 10 year period of FOMO. Where, where, you know, people are, are contemplating getting into these thematic plays. Like, I mean, the big one, of course, being technology and innovation. Um, and, and all the while, the entire time that, that the contemplations have been taking place, people have spoken out against the valuations of these companies. They're, they're very expensive. Oh, it's late. You missed the boat, you know, and, and, and I think the last 10 years sort of, even though it's 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 created a bias, 
uh, has proven people wrong again and again and again. And of course, it just proves the theory that that stock prices can keep going up well beyond your expectations uh, again and again and again throughout history. Um, but, you know, when, when, when you see what's going on in these themes um, and then you look back over the last 10 years, of course, that's, you know, the, the recency bias, confirmation bias, you know, all these things that, that, that are concerning behaviorally. Um, and, then, and then you just turn around and you say, you know, I'm going to buy some Tesla stock. I'm going to buy... I'm going to buy, you know, uh, the biotechs. I'm going to buy Moderna. I'm going to buy Pfizer and, you know, BioNTech. And, and uh, I'm going to get into these, these uh, CRISPR. And, and I think, I think you know, those opportunities, uh, they're expensive. But when you look at – actually, uh, sorry, I stand corrected. I, I know I'm rambling on here. But the, the biotech space, I was surprised to see how many of those companies – who have such enormous futures in front of them, were trading below $10 billion market cap. And, so, and, and many of them, in many cases, below $5 billion in market cap. They're all brand new, you know, they're all in companies with brand new innovations. And I think what I, what, what I saw, when you, when you weigh those against, you know, what people believed about Tesla just three years ago, uh, just three years ago, people thought Tesla was going to go out of business. They were going to run out of money, and that was going to be that. I mean, Citron, you know, the, all, all the shorts that have been proven wrong, uh, or at least have, have paid dearly for it uh, in the last uh, year. Um, you know, though, it, 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 you really have to take a closer look at some of these themes and, and, and the valuations. I think I think there's a lot of difficulty when you're looking at something like Tesla uh, as a key holding in some of these thematic funds. Um, you know, be, whether or not it's worth more than the entire auto industry uh, is, you know, is difficult to reconcile. Uh, but so was Apple, right? I mean, wasn't Apple, uh, you know, a surprise? Like, does anybody understand? Does, is it? Is it? Too difficult to determine what the value of brand equity is uh, when 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 a company comes along. Uh, and I'm you know I'm by no means advocating for for whether or not it's the right time or the wrong time to buy you know a thematic ETF in the innovation space. But but when you look at 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 what uh, you know one particular company has done to change the view of of innovation and in the future of the automobile and space travel and and uh satellite mobile i mean satellite data for internet uh it, isn't it almost impossible to to reach a conclusion about whether or not the valuations are are outlandish or somehow reasonable or uh, you know like i think i think based on on all the you know previous models of valuation and discounted cash flows um you know, you can throw all that out the window. As investors certainly have, in terms of, of uh, you know, is this company worth hundreds of times its earnings or thousands of times its earnings, uh, or does it even make money? <laughs> Those are the difficult cases. But, but in the case of, of uh, you, you know, um, these companies like like Tesla, for example, you know, if you listen, for example, to Ron Barron, he certainly makes a compelling case about 
whether or not these companies are going to be worth uh, two or three trillion dollars down the road or not. Well, I think that that sort of goes to what Mark, you were talking about earlier, mm. the, the positive feedback loop that occurs. And, and this may be, this may or may not be, um, late stage or late cycle behavior. All right. Um, and if it's late cycle behavior, it can go on. Late cycles can last a long, long time. So they can continue to make things look wonderful for long periods of time. It looks like it. (laughs) Yeah. And Mark was saying that earlier about how the feedback loops, right? So if Tesla, now that it's in the S and P 500, um, it has non-sensitive price buyers, right? So when anyone goes to buy any kind of index, a market capitalization weighted index, they buy X percentage of Tesla. And it doesn't matter what valuation that is at. Um, the, the indices are not, are not sensitive to that. Yeah. And so they have this infinite cash flow loop. And then the other or, thing I think that we've, we've seen done and Mark, I'd love, love to have your insights on this is that a lot of these companies have created, um, uh, followings that are incredible. Like they're just, they're, they're sort of, they're sort of a, I don't know, a club, a cult, if you will, (laughs) cult following. So maybe, maybe you want to comment on that a little bit more and dig into that a little bit more. Well, there's certainly, I I certainly think it's psychological, right? If you're a fundamental investor, you're not buying these themes. Like you just can't, right? And and you just, they're just not going to fit any kind of financial modeling for you to look at them from a fundamental perspective. Uh, the way this stuff gets valued is on forward earnings growth, generally speaking. If there's any kind of fundamental metric, it's, well, they continue to grow their earnings. Or if it's Netflix, they continue to grow their subscribers. If it's Tesla, they continue to sell more cars, even if it's, they're not profitable or not, right? That's all anyone's looking for. Eventually, it stops somewhere. When it, what that moment of where it stops, I don't go, but where, where like, I don't know, Um it really does those sort of belie to what Mike is getting at is the psychological behavior, uh, you know, and where we see it most acute actually is in cryptocurrencies. So on cryptocurrencies, there's no fundamental basis for Bitcoin other than you've got millions of people that believe that it should be the new standard of value for the, for the world. Right. And that faith supports it the same way that that faith supports the astronomical growth evaluations that we've seen on Spider-Man ones and Mickey Mantle rookie cards and all kinds of collectibles, right? You're in a sort of a mania phase in terms of of just people believing that there's there's a there's a growth to this. So, and we know that at a certain point, this ends, right? When it ends, I don't know, but it does end because at a certain point, whether it's rising interest rates, whether it's economic disappointment, it gets to the point where you know future growth is not worth paying for now with money I don't have, right? And that's where things hit the road. I don't know when that occurs or where, and I would never want to guess when it is, but you're, you're absolutely right in terms of what is driving this. And we're seeing it in the inflows is primarily retail investors buying and continuously buying religiously based on whatever positive metric is being thrown their way. Um, and you know, if you go back to 1998, 1999, it's the same thing existed, right? Where, People talked about the potential growth of companies and they kept going, they kept going and kept going. Then in 2002, 2003, it just, it hit an inflection point where there was no more liquidity to come into the marketplace, no more leverage to come into the marketplace to support it. And things started to drop. 
And then the floor comes out always a lot faster than it does on the rise, right? Because then you end up with that psychological impact. At some point in time, you know, I do believe this happens in this current marketplace uh, simply because there's got to be disappointments with some of these companies. Some of these companies are going to be disappointing at some point in time. Like, I don't know if it's Tesla, but one of the other, you know, Tesla wannabes will, will likely, you know, fall apart. We saw that a little bit with, with Nikola, right? For mm-hmm. example, you know, some of these companies come in and they just, they blow up. Um, and it's hard to know when that will be. For the ETF perspective, this is why there's this diversified thematic play with people moving there. Uh, but I, I, I really don't, I really think that, I have to agree with Mike. It's a psychological thing because it right now yeah. it defies any classical understanding of fundamental valuations, which is always a really scary place to be. Because if you change your mindset as an investor to move from a fundamental rational frame of mind to one that's trying to guess what the masses are going to be valuing things at, that's where you can run into a lot of problems in, in, in investing in things. Sure. It, it feels dangerous. I, I just wanted to just cap off what I said because I think, yeah. I think there's, there's a, there's this, you know, indiscriminate, there's this cohort of investors that are just buying, you know, these companies or these themes that are, you know, in the stratosphere indiscriminately because they're sitting there thinking, you know, I should just buy some. What if I'm wrong? What if I've just been wrong all along? What if I'm wrong about the next 10 years? And, and so it's not, it's not, it's it's faithless buying, really. It's not buying because you price, have price insensitive buying. Yeah, for a it's number not because of you, that may yeah. not be economically. It's totally indiscriminate. It's it's really just uh, FOMO and what if I'm wrong? What if I'm what if I've been wrong all along? Okay, well, and, I want to take the other side of this argument, though. Now. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. Do it. So now you got, I'm like, no way. The, the, the world is changing faster than it's ever changed before. And we're seeing uh, a flood of liquidity hit the market. So one of the things that I know we'll want to talk about a little later, but we have printed 25% basically globally of all the money that's ever existed in the last year. Mm-hmm. Right. And so part of what we're seeing is, is a, is a result of a massive amount of liquidity entering the marketplace and chasing fewer assets. We didn't print 25% more stocks or real estate or commodities over the last year. We printed fiat currency of 25% extra over the last year. And so that is going to have some unintended consequences, one of which is to put a whole bunch of money into the hands of all kinds of different uh, investors, both retail and institutional. And the next thing it does is it is it either uh, continues to suppress or, in this case, suppress long-term interest rates to to areas where uh, what 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 is the what is the discounted cash flow uh, valuation of a company that has growth has good growth over the next ten years when your discounted cash flow number is 0.5 percent or was one right. percent and it fell to 0.5 percent so from a from a rational perspective you 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 can get some rationality wrapped around that and then I'd argue you know, on on Tesla well what if the Tesla battery tech is the Tesla battery tech is the battery tech that goes into every car or every electric car that enters the market. What if that is true? What if, what if Tesla creates valuation? So, you know, Amazon's a great example of this back seven years ago, you know, people were talking about Amazon being overvalued. And if you were to do the calculation on, you know, if they were going to meet their earnings projections, they would have to deliver every package on the planet. But then they came with this thing <laughs> called AWS, and AWS now represents more than half of the profitability of the firm. Right. And so, 
Um, you know, I think, I think you, you, I think yeah, that's the point so you're kind of trying to raise Pierre's, yeah. uh, who, what, how, how does it happen? When are we paying too much? When are we on, when aren't we? Those are great well, questions. Well, I don't like, know if they're I, answerable. Like, for example, like 10 years ago, it cost a billion dollars to sequence a genome. Now mm-hmm. it costs, now it costs 600. Mm-hmm. And so in 10 years, we've gone from a cost factor that was, you know, state, a state run cost factor that only a government could afford to raise. And, and now we can get our, you know, it's only it, this year, I think the cost, uh, this is according to ARC, of course. Uh, and, and, uh, but this year it cost, it's come down to $600 to sequence your whole genome. So you, you look at a company, you know, you look at healthcare and the future of healthcare, who knows? Like what, what is a company like CRISPR, what are CRISPR and Pacific Biosciences, for right. example, what are they going to do? You know, they, 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 there's, you know, this is a whole new area of healthcare that is, that is, unqu- you know, it hasn't been, it hasn't been fully quantified yet. There's projections obviously, but you know, which are really uh, incredible, um, but it, it it changes it changes our lives, yep. just like just like you know who knew like two thousand and three who knew that the iPod and then the iPhone which was a phone attached to an iPod who knew that that was going to transform our lives the way that it has you know like I I, I always recall like the tech stories and I mean Microsoft where somebody said oh who the hell is going to have a computer in their home. And, and, you know, when you hear, when you go back to those like, examples, anyway, so that, that's basically the point you're getting to, which is that there's so many unknowns, uh, and, and, and who are going to be the dominant players, Mark. And, and there's no way to know that. Like you, you certainly, you know, going back and looking at companies like Alta Vista and ask Mr. Jeeves, yeah. those are, those are, you know, those are not, those are not the businesses you want to end up owning, but, but in right. the beginning you have to own them all. Otherwise, Correct. you have no chance. So, so that's where you know owning a, 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 an index of some kind that owns uh, uh, an allocation in all of these companies is the way to go. Because eventually, the winners will 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 outshine the losers, and you know the same way that they have in the S and P five hundred and every other index. Well, it's an interesting, it's an interesting point. I think if you're going to buy the indexes, that's one, that's one thing. And the indexes garner the vast majority of the returns through a very small number of the participants in the indices. If you're going to thoughtfully think about how you diversify your market capitalization weighted portfolio. And I think this comes back to the core and explore and what are going to be non-correlated industries that you might view as such that have drivers that are structurally different than the rest of the economy that are taking advantage of massive waves in some sort of change. And I think the reason I bring up uranium as we're talking about all the innovation stuff is because there's, those are two very, I think, you know, reasonable thematic approaches, but they, they, they stem from very different initial conditions. But I think they're worthwhile considering if you're going to build a portfolio of, of stocks, let's say you, you know, think about the S&P 500. If you're buying that, you're saying, I would like to perform like everybody else. 
I'm, I would like to be indexed in my performance. Or I don't want to underperform anybody else, which is fine. If your thought is I actually would like to outperform everybody else, then mm-hmm. by definition, you're going to have to do something different. We were just talking to Ted Sadies and, and, uh, one of the quotes in his book was something like, um, we want to be every, all the investors want to be the same except different. Right. They all want to be the same, except they want to outperform everybody else, but they want to outperform them. Same, same, but different. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But you got to keep in mind that the S&P, like this has been one of the worst years ever to own the S&P relative to other indices, the S&P 500 I'm referring to. So, you know, you're up on a one-year basis, you know, around 45, 50% on the NASDAQ. You're up way up on the Russell 2000 now with the cyclical move. And the S&P 500 hasn't done much of anything. Um, and again, where it goes back to is, you know, we talk about companies like CRISPR Technologies. I, yes, I mean, I, if I look at what that business could be, like feasibly, that could be a $3 trillion business. Okay, If CRISPR does what it's advertised to do in terms of letting us, you know, resequence genomic code so that we can eliminate, you know, terminal genetic illnesses, sky's the limit. But that company is not huge, Right. And so what you're sort of seeing is sort of this like mid-cap amount of money move into these companies that has really moved their valuation. And that's not being reflected in the S&P 500, right? Tesla was only added to the S&P 500 in the fall. Yeah, last last fall. Right. And and so, you know, it's going to take a long time for that to to work its way into the S&P 500. The companies that are leading the S&P 500 are basically the largest names that are also cross-listed on the NASDAQ. Um, so, you, you know, as an investor, this has been the first year for like as a baseline exposure to the U.S. equities, you would have been better to own the NASDAQ and the Russell than own the S&P 500, uh, where the S&P 500 in the past has much more captured some of that. Um, this is where, you know, we try to talk about things, you know, not being different. You know, this time is different. And, and I really don't believe this time is different. I, I, I believe, you know, the rules of, of investing over times, over a cycle apply but certainly something different is happening in that you're seeing these tails right that these tails in the equity market start to really diverge from the core of the S&P 500 where actually if you look at the majority of companies the S&P 500 they're actually well below their historical PEs if they're not in technology right and so this is this is a really interesting dynamic uh, and indexers have been punished for that where people that have blown out their risk parameters to go after growth equities have been rewarded by by the boatload. And I, and I totally agree with Mike saying, look, a large portion of my portfolio was put in this Explorer as well. Uh, I actually had to force myself to sell a bunch of my ETFs this year uh, simply because I'm like, I can't, like I'm up and I'd love to keep making yeah. money on this, but it doesn't make sense for me to, to, to move forward with, you know, my semiconductor position. I, I believe semiconductors are the new oil, right? I, they're in everything, right? They're, they're Fred's, you know, ranks red hot for the economy is semiconductors and there's not enough of them to go around. So, you know, that's, there's definitely a play there, but if you look at the valuation perspective in terms of the divergence versus this traditional economy, traditional stocks, it's absolutely massive. And I, and I don't have an answer for it other than it's deeply dis, um, unsettling for me because in the past, in the past, I could always point towards the S and P 500 uh, outperforming about 90% of active managers. But this year, as managers move their benchmark from the S&P 500 to the NASDAQ 100, which is something that I'm seeing 
across the investment management industry, that's changing a lot. So you're seeing a lot more movement towards a smaller subset of growth stocks, ignoring this larger index that for my entire investment career has really been the paragon of market efficiency. I don't know what you think about that, Mike, but it it it, it is something that's very unsettling to me because it, it it really moves against something that I've, you know, that I've been kind of it's been second nature to me to look at to that as sort of your benchmark mm-hmm. for efficiency. Well, I, I think it's a, it's a great point of discussion to try and help those uh, investors and advisors out there. Um, first, that, okay, you have um, some equity beta premium that you're trying to harness, whether that's the TSX or the S&P 500. And that is about being average. You're the index. Now, you're going to own the average portfolio, and that ends up outperforming because of fees and all that sort of stuff. Um, But then there are these areas where you can have thematic growth, waves of innovation, or uh, and, and arguably that's what's going on in uranium right now. There's a wave of innovation that has been set by a very low point in the cycle. It's, it's a commodity just like like oil is a commodity. And when you get a low point, it, it creates all kinds of efficiencies and it shuts down old production, brings on new production. Um, the, um, uh, the, the, the sourcing of oil and, and natural gas through, um, what's that called? The, uh, it escapes fracking. me, fracking was another one where you had that type of, you know, an innovation that created a bit of a change. So in your portfolios, you should probably be having a a more, more explore than you might think, right? Because you, but you really want that explore to be very, very different riding a very different thematic wave that you've identified. That's going to create some sort of movement from a, a current equilibrium to a disequilibrium right. where you're going to appreciate in price because of that to a new equilibrium where you are no longer in this new thematic wave, right? You're in a, you're in a new equilibrium state. So you probably should be thinking about having, you know, some thematic exposure through your explore part of your portfolio that's bigger than you think. The next thing is how do we deal with that when we have big winners, right? And I think one way to think about that is to, to, to sort of think about your portfolio and, and set limits where you're going to say, well, I'm going to have, you know, X percent in my core. And then these other realms are going to be Y percent of my portfolio. And I'm simply going to rebalance. I'm simply going to say, oh, my, my, ex, my, my explore, uh, version one has doubled. So I've got to bring that back down and, and I've got to reappropriate that to my other uh, areas. And then maybe I've figured out a new thematic area that I want to jump into. And then the other is to look at the valuations to see if the explorer that you've expressed an investment in is now reached a valuation such that even if it works out, you're only going to get average equity risk premium returns. Right. Right. So if you're, if you're looking at buying, you know, tech stocks, in 2000, yeah, they, they were revolutionary. What we've experienced since from 2000 to 2020 has changed in every way, the way we buy, purchase, get delivery of, sell things. But the valuations in 2000 were a bit extreme. And it took 14 years on that index, if you will, of the NASDAQ uh, index, took 14 years to break even from a price perspective. So I think if you if you think about the the problem that we're all facing, and you say, okay, well, what, what do we do? Well, you probably have to think about, okay, yeah, 
explore needs to be something in my portfolio. Um, and then I have to have rules around it to help me manage the overall risk in my portfolio. And your, your explore needs to be harnessing different, structurally different drivers, like truly structurally different drivers. We saw that in, um, in 2020 with the, with the drive to a, a mobile work environment. Right. right. So we had the correction and then we had everyone realize, oh, everyone's going to be working from home. And there's a whole group of stocks that benefited from that thematic play. And so I think that those are things Past that. Tense. Yeah. <laughs> so right now is do, do, does, uh, yeah. What was it? What, um, you know, like you said, Tesla, the whole, the whole vehicle industry and, and, uh, and what was the other was zoom was, was the same valuation as the whole airline industry, I think, or something like that. Yeah. That's um, nuts. It, yeah. It can be nuts. So you have to have some, some way of keeping some sobriety within your portfolio as you're managing those, uh, uh, explore portions of your portfolio. And I can get my head around that. I mean, like on the thematic ETF side, for example, where I tend to focus a lot of trying to talk to investors is looking not necessarily at the users of technology, but at the providers of technology where you can, where you can determine a little bit more fundamental growth, right? So if you look at, let's take stick semiconductors, for example, you know, Taiwan semiconductor accounts for about 25 to 30% of the components used in semiconductors globally. If I look at all the smart cars, they're all using either AMD or NVIDIA chipsets. So if, if, you, if, you, if you pair it back and think thematically that, to your point, Mike, what are the different drivers? You know, what we tend to get razzled and dazzled on on the equity market are the users that are putting out the product that have the marketing and have that cult-like following that I've been talking about. But sometimes what it misses is that a lot of those companies have to go back to the same um, distribution chain to get their component parts. So like East Asia is just dominating in terms of semiconductors, lithium battery components, uh, sensor technologies, things like Kaons in Japan, robotics. And this is the stuff that I don't think investors quite have their head around that really, if we get to a point where we reach that tipping point, um, you know, Tesla may not be able to make cars if they can't get NVIDIA GPUs and they can't get lithium batteries for their lithium ion batteries. That's a real yeah. thing. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Or they can't get rare earth metals from China. Um, yep. So that's kind of where, you know, I've been kind of, you know, again, pushing back that if you really think there's a secular long term aspect to your point in the explore, you can look at thematics that give you those buckets. And you'll notice the valuations based on revenue growth and drivers tend to be a little bit more in line with companies that have really interesting products, but actually aren't actually selling them. Right. They just right. They have a product that looks like it'll capture it. Um, so I do think that if we do have some sort of secular growth and thematics, I do think that the picks and shovels, for lack of a better term, are going to start to out move beyond the users, mm -hmm. uh, particularly after we see the semiconductor shortage globally really put in framework the fact how many large uh, chip dependent companies are really um, hamstrung by the fact that they relate to a lot more smaller amount of providers on the foundry and semiconductor services. So that's, you know, again, back to your point, Mike, that's where you'd yeah. fit on your exploration portfolio, something that's a little divergent that would still fit with your thematic bucket, but maybe you're getting it at a valuation that makes more sense in terms of economic. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. You, you don't want to just think at the, at the tertiary level of um, I'm, I'm googly eyes over Tesla. 
you want to look down the supply chain yeah, of right. the things that they need to buy in order to accomplish what they're going to do or what they say they're going to do and think about how what the portfolio might look like beyond what's super obvious. And I think that is actually what you guys must ponder as I've seen yeah, some is. of the ETF yeah. construction that Horizons has done is that when they when they take a theme, there's going to be quite a swath of businesses in there where, where you look at that the holdings and you say, oh, I didn't know those companies were sort of related to that. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that as you as you build a thematic exposure and how you make sure you capture the, the whole stack of what might be influenced. That's exactly what I do. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Right. The, the, I was just going to say, these are all these, these uh, companies and providers who are at the periphery who are feeding off the business, right? I mean, that are feeding the business, that are making it possible for the business to to supply, to, to bring to market their, their products like Tesla, for example, and its batteries. Um, it's, it's one thing to say we're going to make the best batteries in the world and we're going to dominate that space. But if you don't get the supply of the components, uh, you're out of luck no matter what. Right. Exactly. Yeah, maybe right. Mark, you can you can take us through just an example of one of the ETFs that was constructed at Horizons and how you act, just so that we could all get a, a more right. uh, solid uh, grasp of how so you might the, have done the, that. So there's one that I did that based on cryptocurrencies, believe it or not. So right. that was uh, um, the Horizons uh, Big Data. Uh, we changed the name to Big Data because really, when I started to look at the portfolio, it was actually a big data portfolio. Uh, so it's Big Data and Hardware Index ETF. Um, and the idea here is if you have a belief in cryptocurrencies, we could debate all day long the merits of cryptocurrencies. But if you have a belief in the usage of blockchain and cryptocurrencies, you have to look at what's actually going to benefit the most from that infrastructure growth. Now, clearly, if you're offering coins or you own the coins, that's the commodity, right? That's what's involved. But because it's a digital infrastructure that's needed for cryptocurrencies, cloud computing, Absolutely massive. You need to have absolute massive exposure to cloud computing. Um, and we're seeing that massive drawdowns on space where you're actually hearing about like, you know, Eastern European hacking groups hacking um, servers of North American data centers uh, so that they can just mine Bitcoin. Like they're not even mm -hmm. trying to do any kind of hacking. They just want their compu computational power to be doing more algorithmic changing. Um and then back to the foundry and semiconductor aspect as well. Like, are those high valuations? They are, but not at the exponential growth rate that you see. So the way that we built that thematic ETF is it's one-third cryptocurrency miners, and then it's one-third cloud computing, and it's one-third uh, semiconductors. And what's really nice about that is when we had the big sell-off in cryptocurrencies in 2018, 2019, or especially going into 2019, the, the ETF, even though it had a fair amount of exposure to the pure play cryptocurrency miners, it still did relatively well because it had all the big data providers that were being used for everything else. Um, so that's always how we're looking at thematics. Um, you know, we're looking at, we just, we're going to launch a new product tomorrow, which is again, we're, we're showing the big leadership companies in battery technology, uh, internet technology, it's called BBIG. So it's battery, biotech, internet, and gaming. Now it has some of the big users like CRISPR, you know, Bluebird, things like that in biotechnology. But then on the battery side, we've got companies like Abramal, um, you know, uh, LG, POSCO Chemicals. These companies, again, are providing this. And what it's nice is it's an economic hedge. Because if you have companies that meet that point of ruin that I talked about, you still have these 
other picks and shovel companies that are building the infrastructure of these themes. So I've been really trying to get investors that if you are buying into the themes, you have to take it all the way down the supply chain to see what is it that fundamentally is going to grow the most. And so you've seen like, for example, exponential growth on lithium miners for obvious reasons. Like, believe it or not, lithium's a commodity. Energy usage globally because of cryptocurrency mining. That's why there's a big movement on clean energy with cryptocurrency investors because at a certain point, governments are like, we can't have this huge drawdown on excess energy being used to mine cryptocurrencies. You've got to get a hydrogen or or hydro, you know, hydroelectric or something yeah. dealing with it. So, you know, it's funny that as the world changes, it doesn't, right? It still comes back to what kind of things do we need to still get out of the ground to build the infrastructure we need for these transformational global changes. Love it. Love it. So I, I think if, if you guys are uh, okay, maybe we move a little bit off of thematic, but on to some of the other major topics that you're um, that you're seeing at Horizons, and one of those was sort of fixed income market, yeah. and um, and maybe can can you uh, give us some insights into what you're seeing there from from the investors that you're talking to? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's it was talking specifically the retail advisor channel. Um, mm-hmm. The average client age is 69, so that's the average client age of Canadian client now, and um, which means that for the all intents and purposes, despite longevity. You need some fixed income in your portfolio. I, I'm certainly, I you know I have fixed income in my portfolio and I'm 40 um, simply because as a risk off asset, nothing works better. I, you know, the, the team at Resolve has some of the best data out there on, on holding, you know, treasuries as, as, you know, your ultimate penultimate hedge. Um, mm-hmm. But Agreed. what's happened is you have, you know, 60, 50% of portfolios are in income yielding products in the Canadian marketplace. And Canada has the highest proportion of fixed income ETF ownership in the world, uh, 33% of the market. And Canadians wow. love to pay a lot for cell That's phones, huge. love to pay a lot for real estate, and they love to pay a lot for bonds. So, you know, they have... <laughs> uh, oh, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so you have this, you know, it's a big deal. And so what I find really funny is we talk about thematic plays. And if you talk to advisors... You know, they get their heads around, you know, back to what Mike was going about. I know that, you know, Tesla may not may be a risky play, but I've budgeted for that. What they don't budget for on the risk side is losses on the fixed income. They don't budget for losses. Like there's this still this lingering view that somehow fixed income is risk free. Um, and maybe on the credit side, it is for treasuries, but certainly not in the rest of the complex. And so what we're seeing is the fact that, you know, keeping it very, very simple if I've got a client who has a million dollar fixed income portfolio, they could have been invested in effectively risk free, close to risk free bonds, you know, 10 year US Treasury, other than the interest rate risk, you know, three years ago, entering $30,000, $40,000, maybe up it a bit with some other corporate bonds. So you're getting them kind of like, you know, with a standard deviation of two or three, you're getting them four or 5% a year. So they're making 50,000 bucks. That same portfolio, nothing has changed from a credit risk perspective. That same portfolio is getting you maybe $12,000, $15,000. And this has created an absolutely huge structural issue for the advice channel in that regardless of what's happening with the macro environment, I've got these older clients that need income and I've got to blow my entire portfolio risk budget to go after income. So what I'm seeing is classical, and actually this worries me way more than the thematic risk aspect is I'm seeing uh, classical psychological behavior where there's just like, what's yielding more? What can I get the most amount of yield for relative to the risk and just assets flying that way? And and ultimately that ends up being more problematic because as I highlighted, the risk budget of the portfolio for a lot of advisors 
tends to be sort of understood on the equity side where you always have like big, big problems happen is when something blows up on the part of the portfolio that's not supposed to be, uh, was supposed to be, you know, risk averse or, 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 you know, whatever. And so that's, and we're really seeing that problem manifest itself in the advisor world. Because again, back to this simple problem, my clients need income. If I'm to try to generate them the income that they're used to, I'm in, you know, in some cases, increasing the fixed income portfolio risk by 30, 40, maybe even 50 percent. And that's and that's that's something that, you know, we've never really seen before uh, in, in our career where this is this asset class is 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 terrible from a risk reward return profile. Right. So you've got you've got this chasing of yield due to the extremely low uh, interest rate environment, but also th- it's the low rate environment on on um, sovereigns. But also the spreads that you get from sovereign going up, you know, sort of the capital stack and moving into corporates and, and high yields, that also has compressed dramatically. And I think you're right. Most people, when you say, well, I'm going to buy a thematic and I'm going to buy my uh, Bitcoin ETF or my Tesla, like, I'm prepared for that to have a major drawdown. I think you're right. They're not prepared for their, you know, 5%. Uh, high yield bond and junk expressly in one or two very narrow industries, potentially. They're not prepared for the equity risk that's embedded in that fixed income product. And that, that I think is something that it's interesting because if if you're worried about rates, if you're worried about interest rates rising and the impact on your portfolio, what you're saying is I'm worried about duration. And when you're worried about duration, you're saying, well, how long is it going to get, how long is it going to take me to get paid back for, you know, locking in this asset? And your highest duration assets, your longest duration assets are, you know, large, uh, growth stocks that have very high growth rates that have been priced into the future in order to make that, that multiple of, of, of their earnings work. And that's what we saw in Q1 with some of the, the you know, the, the growth stocks really kind of taking a pause in their upward trajectory as the yield curve sort of, you know, started to correct a little bit. And we had a little bit of increase across the, the sovereign uh, debt world. So we went from, I don't know, 50 or 60 basis points on the 10 year to over 1%. And, and I think so people saw some correction in their equity market. They're used to that. Uh, but then they saw it in their bond mark, their bond portfolios. And they, they don't, it's not supposed to do that. No, you know, and that's, and that's what the clients are calling them about. It's not that right. I've lost 10% on the NASDAQ. It's like, whatever I've lost, you know, X percentage in this bond fund that I'm not supposed to lose money on. Um, it's my safe money. Well, and the metrics, and yeah. really the, the key here is risk reward profile. So like if I take the broad benchmark, which is the FTSE TMX universe, which is like what all the Canadian bond managers benchmark themselves on. The duration on that is eight years. Okay, so for every one percent rise in interest rates, you would lose one percent of them. So, you know, you were already up fifty beeps. Yep, you've lost four and a half percent already this year on that particular thing. But then it gets worse. <laughs> it gets worse because not only do you get that. Yeah, yeah. Matters. Not only do you get that, but here comes the kick in the teeth. Right. So, uh, so <laughs> that's not all. <laughs> no, um, you also get the fact that a lot of the triple Bs. Now, not necessarily in that benchmark, but it. it, it with low interest rates, the same thing that's affecting growth stocks affects fixed income. So if I'm a rating agency and I'm looking at a credit issuer and, you know, they're triple B minus, so they're giving me that three, three and a half percent I'm looking for, 
I'm like, eh, I'll keep them at triple B minus or I'll keep them at triple B because, you know, with interest rates at 50 basis points, they're easily able to deal with their debt. But if we see a rise in interest rates on this triple B, which is, by the way, every active manager, if you ask them, you know, how are you beating the benchmark? It's like, well, I own a lot more triple B because that's yeah. where I'm getting my excess yield. Well, guess what happens to that triple B if interest rates go up? It's not triple B anymore, right? The downgrade risk on the on the triple B side is also huge to that spread aspect that Mike's referring to as well. And so you have these multiple risk drivers here. And then at the end of the day, you also have investors simply like, I need 3%, right? I have a million. How can I have a million dollar portfolio and be living on $20,000 of income? It doesn't work, right? That's not what I was earning to build this $1 million portfolio. So how, how do they, how do they meet this, this gap? And so it's, it's a stretching on the credit, stretching on the yield. And then unfortunately my business doesn't help as well because the reason ETFs are so successful in Canada for fixed income is because ETFs provide you this liquidity to buy, right? So they, they give you stock pricing on bonds. Otherwise, you'd be still buying from the bond trade guy down on Bay Street who, you know, was charging you 2%, but you don't realize it, right? So you have, you have the ETFs that provide this transparency and liquidity, but a lot of the ETFs pay out fixed payouts. So a lot of the ETFs are still paying you like 3%. If you look at some of the broad bond indices, even some of my ETFs were doing this until recently. It's something that we try to rectify internally, but we're giving you two and a half, three percent. But the yield to maturity on the ETF is like 1.1, 1.2. Now, if you yield to wow. maturity is what you're going to earn on a go forward basis. So basically, what I'm giving you is a bunch of return on capital. You're looking at the ETF and saying it's low risk, it's lots of triple B, and I'm getting three percent, and you're buying it. But really, what you're buying is something with eight years of duration. A yield is a little bit over 1% and about 30% of the portfolio is at risk of a downgrade. Yeah. Um, this, uh, you know, and it, I, will, I will add one more, one more <laughs> wonderful bonus that you get that now that, 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 that asset class is, is also correlated to equities. Yes. So what, what you thought was a hedge, what, what was that magical hedge over the last, well, since 1982, basically that had a massive positive carry. Now doesn't have that much of a positive carry. And because you've gone out, the risk curve behaves much more like equity. So you also have an asset class that's correlated to your equity portfolio. So that when equities do go down, if they go down due to some sort of inflation or interest rate shock, those bond portfolios are going to go down as well for all the reasons that Mark pointed out. And that that's a real challenge. And we see that constantly, right? So in the, in the, bond side of the portfolio, reaching for yield and making the bond side much more equity-like. You probably should just think about maybe shifting. If you want, if duration is your concern, take your longest duration assets and reduce those. Well, your longest duration assets are those very, uh, very high growth, high valuation stocks that have no yield. Those are your longest duration assets. Mm -hmm. And so you might think about actually making your portfolio so con more conservative. But again, that flies in the face of your recency bias and your overconfidence bias. Um, so it, it's a really hard thing to do. Just as you hi highlighted, Mark, earlier, I had to take my portfolio and move back out of thematic because, uh, you know, it wasn't making sense to me. And so you had some guardrails around how to do that. So are there are there any answers there for investors? 
<laughs> I mean, the, the, the one that, that that's very counterintuitive, and I know I'm preaching to the choir on this one to you, Mike, but it, it's, it's treasury ETFs. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and the reason being is if you look at March, 2020, so we want to talk about recency bias, just look one year ago, there was days during the worst of March, 2020, where the only asset classes delivering a positive return were us treasuries and cash. Okay. <laughs> and, and so what you can do is look, if you know that you have this engendered risk in your fixed income portfolio, you can still fix the risk by having treasury. So yes, maybe the, the 10 year goes to 250 again. And I'm going to lose another three, four percent on that treasury bucket. That's possible, right? But what I can do is if I over allocate to treasuries or I have higher allocation to treasuries in my fixed income portfolio, at least I have that ballast. So I haven't changed the risk parameters of my total portfolio. And if let's say this, you know, six trillion dollars of stimulus doesn't work, which is a real like people keep talking about this economic recovery like it's like it's a given. Um, if this stimulus doesn't work. And, you know, there's if we don't see a real economic comeback if COVID, you know, lingers, if we end up with COVID-22 uh, or these variants, like there's so many risk, bare risk factors that aren't being, uh, you know, and I'm generally optimistic, but there's so many risk factors that aren't being taken care of. If you put $6 trillion of stimulus on the global economy, if you put 25% of the world's monetary surplus and it does nothing, <laughs> now you've got a big, big problem, right? Well, that, 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 yeah, that, that, that goes to... <laughs> That that goes to that that you know that ratio where where they were you know there was once uh, a lot of talk about how you know every every five dollars of of stimulus of money printing yeah. was only producing a dollar of growth. Yeah, it's 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 actually right? the last survey showed from those last stimulus checks showed that twenty five percent is actually discretionary. The rest is savings and and, yeah. and debt. Which, but anyways, back to the, the treasuries. Deflationary environment; those can make eight nine percent. Right? They can. They can really move for you as that asset class. And now your risk fixed income is put into that. Now your risk parameters are set. So then what you can do the rest of your fixed income portfolio is now I can go and look at high yield or now I can go and look at equity income or whatever, but I can match the risk, right? I can find a way to improve the credit risk by having treasuries. And now I can go short duration, high yield, preferred shares have, you know, preferred share ETFs are on a tear for a number of really important reasons. Um, you know, secular reasons, the banks are going to basically redeem all their preferred shares potentially uh, that are, you know, above sort of 250 basis points over the next two to three years, about 13, 14 billion dollars will be redeemed. So all of these things have a pricing floor. They're yielding above 5%. So we're seeing lots of money moving to preferred share ETFs. That'll get you your four and a half percent. Now it's, it's equity risk as Mike highlighted, but if I offset that with risk from the treasuries, this is just one example where yeah. I can you know, bring my risk parameters back in, it makes a lot more sense. So again, I may lose on the treasuries in the meantime, but it's got my balance, it's got my risk, and I can get my income from other places. The problem that you want to avoid is having just like broad investment-grade credit exposure where your risk is not what you think it is, right? You just got all these things that can go wrong, and then you end up losing money on that portfolio. So that's, you know, thinking from an ETF strategy standpoint, it's the idea of matching the risk. And the nice thing about ETFs is, there's lots of opportunities for you to buy treasury ETFs, buy a diversified ETF, have someone like the team at Resolve who, who managed ETF for us, believe it or not, HIRA, where they have, you know, a nice bucket in treasuries, again, where they're managing that risk. You know, this is the kind of idea where you can use ETFs there. But, you know, you want to have something that's that, you know, the one aspect that you talking about, as I mentioned before, is what if we don't have an economic recovery? Because I've never seen so much consensus on economic recovery. The point where I get a little bit concerned that, you know, 
that's probably all priced in. And there's still, you know, I, I, I'm stuck at home for the next two weeks. There's probably still a lot of risk factors still out there yeah. that could derail that economic scenario. Yeah, you've got you've got demographics, you've got debt, you've got uh, technological innovation, which in and of itself is deflationary. It's not inflationary for, from the productivity aspect of the of side of things. So I think it's not a foregone conclusion that you know all of a sudden growth is going to be robust and we're going to return to total normalcy. It's possible, but lots of things are possible, and and so that that's what creating a portfolio is it's creating a portfolio of hedges to the potential future outcomes that you don't know. You know, we, I always ask people, well, if you, if you could admit to yourself that you didn't know anything, I mean, as in you didn't know the future, what right. portfolio would you hold? Right. If you could admit that you, you don't have, you don't know what's going to happen, what would you hold? And then, and then think about what you would hold, go from there and say, okay, what do I think would happen? And then probabilistically weight that what's the probability I think that this or that happens and then positioning your portfolio for those probabilities makes, makes a great deal of sense to, to me. Um, but it's, it's a hard way to think. It's not a, it's not particularly intuitive as you mentioned. It doesn't make for a good Reddit conversation, you know, no. <laughs> 40 year old guy and I'm 20% in treasuries. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Totally. I love it. I love it. You know what? Yeah. You know what I love about? I, I love this conversation because, you know, I, I after being an advisor for fifteen years <laughs> myself, you know, I I left I left the advisory business realizing that I knew so little, like nothing, about the fixed income market, and that was you know that was twenty years ago, and and I I think. You know, if I if I was that naive about what the the bond market was all about back then, I, I love the fact that we're having this conversation because it just proves to me that that even when we started advisor analysts, for example, like really like what started really what launched advisor analysts was this ignorance about the bond market and what was going on in the great financial crisis and deflation. Right, deflation was a huge topic at the beginning, yep. at our in, in our beginning, yep. and 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 now we're sort of rounding the corner. Um, I think we, you know, we had a conversation with uh, Alex Shahidi and and yep. Damon Basiri, and you know, I sort of wondered out loud. I don't know if we actually, I wondered out loud how long it would take, how long it took. I mean, for for people from the seventies who had who had really commodities and oil and things like that to benefit from and equities were a complete write off and and you know bonds uh reached their high their their high yields their low valuations in 81 with that you know death of equities article mm-hmm. in newsweek um you know that how long did it take after that turn of events for investors to realize there's a different cycle now and, yeah, different and regime, yeah. the, 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 the regime has changed. Interest rates have peaked and are falling now. I'm still owning all these commodities and stuff that I picked up in the seventies and I'm, I'm afraid to let them go. And, and you know, what if this thing isn't for real, this new change, this new regime. And now kind of, we're like at the opposite end of that, aren't we? Like where, where the regime is changing slowly, but surely. And, and how long is it going to take for investors and for advisors to realize 
I'm at the, you know, we're at the beginning. What if I do the wrong thing? What if I don't know what I'm talking about? Um, you know, I, I, I look at that and I think, I think this is such a great conversation because, you know, like are, are, are a lot of people in the business just taking sort of the easy way out, the low hanging fruit of, of credit to get the, the, you know, the stated yield and, and making, you know, the mistake where, where I wasn't even looking at fixed income to think that I was going to lose 15, 10 or 15 or 20% there. And, and, you know, which I, that's what I love about your point in the beginning, Mark, was that, was that, you know, advisors are so busy, you're so intent, so busy looking at equities. Where am I going to get the growth from? Where am I going to get the, the, you know, the, 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 the return on, on the equity side? And they're not paying attention to the fixed income side as much as they need to. Well, they, they, they're paying attention, but they're maybe they just prioritizing, don't. they're prioritizing the wrong major sort of income yeah. factors. And, and the funny thing about fixed income uh, is that it, you can only make the coupon. That is your maximum return. Oh, and if you buy the bond at a discount, you can make that. But, you know, basically yeah. you, you make the yield to maturity and no more. When you buy equities, you can have those major standard deviation events where you get the right tail. Yeah. Where you can have a massive return in one of your equities or one of your sectors that sort of compensates you for all of the other um, uh, decisions that may have been less than optimal. Whereas bonds, if you make a boo-boo in your bond portfolio, it is very hard to make that boo-boo up. This is a very technical term, boo-boo. Um, <laughs> it's very hard to make up those uh, those mistakes or those negative returns with the balance of your portfolio, in particular in such a low yield environment, right? So if, if you happen to be in a, you know something in your fixed income portfolio, and let's say ten percent of your fixed income portfolio disappears because you know it was a triple B and it got downgraded and et cetera, et cetera. Well, at a one and a half percent yield, that's 15 years of trying to make that up. Yep. Right. So, so it, it's incredibly important that um, investors and allocators approach the fixed income side of their portfolio with, with some, some real thought because it is, it is sourcing a different sovereign bonds are sourcing a truly unique source of risk that they're compensating you for. Mm -hmm. And it's not what equities are compensating you for. Um, it's not what commodities are compensating you for. So, so there's a very different source of risk there. But if you go into corporate credit and even more, and as you go, uh, through the balance sheet to high yield and whatnot, it gets more and more equity like. And so the, the, the mistakes that you can make there in, in the, in the context of your fixed income portfolio, um, can be, can be very meaningful and take a long time to recover from. So in the big, in the big crises come yeah. from fixed income, right? That's, that's, yeah. You look historically, when things go really bad, it's because the default risk is mispriced on credit of some kind. So whether it's in the derivatives yeah. market or whatever, yeah. somebody took for granted the risk to get that extra 50 basis points, and then it creates a cascading systemic risk because everyone relies on collateral and credit for the leverage, which is funds everything else. And so that's why it's just so important be watching it because as you see volatility starting to really creep up in the credit market and the fixed income market, it means default risk is increasing. And if default risk happens at a large institutional level, that's where the systemic risk comes in. 
Um, you know, the Archegos thing recently was was interesting, mm-hmm. right? But they could write that off. But if that had been a lot more derivatives across a lot more, uh, you know, uh, investment banks, that could have been really, really bad, even with that small amount of money, because all of a sudden those investment banks then have to start selling off high quality credit to fund collateral. And then people want to take a haircut on that. And then all of a sudden, you know, what was worth three dollars yesterday on a on a high, you know, high investment grade bond is now worth two dollars. And down we go and down we go. Um, yeah. Almost, and even in March of 2020, same thing. Until the Fed came in and backstopped the corporate credit market, that's when the floor was coming out. Um, so, you know, to your point, Pierre, um, it, it, it behooves us to really look at that market because the really, really nasty black swan kind of risk that we talk about that we can never, that nobody can predict, usually comes from a mispricing of risk on that side of the balance sheet. Amazing. Well, certainly it's a much bigger market. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, all of the savings and loan crisis, the Latin American debt crisis, the housing crisis, all were a function of credit markets. And uh, those are the those are the big markets that uh, make the oil to make the machine run smoothly. So what, what else you got? What else are you seeing, Mark? What are the other any other um, top themes that you want to cover today? That, that you're uh, that, that I think important. I think we've covered a covered a lot, man. It's like an hour. <laughs> of course, and we half have. And a half. I'm, gonna, yeah. you know, I'm just, just making. I'm just making sure there's there's yeah. not a diamond left in there. So then I won't the only the only thing, the interesting thing is it's just on marijuana stocks. Okay, this is mm-hmm. kind of again on the explore portion. I don't know where this fits in the larger podcast, but yeah, there's last there's there's final crazy, thoughts. I love it. Yeah, there's yeah. a crazy mispricing between U.S. marijuana stocks and Canadian LPs, and mm-hmm. it's for structural reasons. So. When I talk again about self-directed investors coming into the marketplace, uh, most of the owners of marijuana stocks are retail investors. And so the largest swath of retail investors that you want to capture are the U.S. retail investors. Well, the U.S. retail investors can only buy Canadian LPs because Canadian LPs are the only stocks that are listed in the U.S. And that's because if I have a cultivation and distribution business in the U.S. as a marijuana provider... um, I can't get a U.S. stock listing because I'm actually running a federally illegal business, even if it's legal at right. state level. So the U.S. MSOs are doing extraordinarily well. They raised like the U.S. marijuana profits last year, re- revenues, sorry, were $17.5 billion. In Canada, it was $2.6 billion. But the valuations recently have all been massively towards the Canadian LPs because the U.S. investors are really excited about buying – uh, legal marijuana companies. And so they're buying Kronos and Canopy and Tilray, Afria, which is a combined entity now. But those are Canadian companies. But because they're listed in the US, that's what they can buy. Um, but the companies that are actually making like significant revenue, like actually a lot of the US, large US providers have positive EBITDA, but they're only trading at like six to nine times enterprise value to book, where the Canadian ones are trading at like 18 times uh enterprise value to book and have negative earnings so it's like just the structure of the market and again talking about this really weird dynamic with self-directed investors they're completely missing the boat by buying the wrong stocks that are going to benefit from u.s legalization so believe it or not in this theme that's super overvalued if i look at canadian lps which are primarily held by the etfs on both sides it seems crazy but the stocks that are actually benefiting the most from this are not widely held and can be accessed through, uh, you know, a, a couple U.S. marijuana ETFs. Obviously, we have one, but that's it's 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 just it's 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 hilarious that it's occurred, uh, and it's simply because of the structural mechanism that U.S. investors can't buy U.S. pot stocks 
So they're buying Canadian pot stocks, which really aren't going to benefit from U.S. legalization the way that U.S. pot stocks are. Right. And the, and the one that um, Horizons <laughs> That's a great has, insight. That's the, you guys have both. You have the U.S. version yeah. and you have the Canadian version. So right. if for those people out there who are, you know, hot on, on marijuana as a thematic, you might want to consider looking at the U.S. version to get a much better right. valuation on the underlying businesses that you're buying. Yeah, just interesting. Again, we're talking about the proclivities of thematic investing. There's a yeah. pocket of inefficiency in an inefficient space. Yeah, oh, I love it. Lots of stuff like that happens too. I, I think that's um, that requires that extra bit of uh, research, if you will. That's right a nice on. little nugget. That's a nice little nugget to uh, yeah. cap off the discussion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I said, sell it all. Sell it all. Buy the other yeah. one. No, the other Find other treasures. Find treasures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So this wouldn't be this wouldn't be raise your average if we didn't f- cap it off with mm-hmm. the final question. All right, which is a um would you rather question. Mm-hmm. Okay? Would you rather spend a week in the past or a week in the future? And why? No question, a week in the past that have the knowledge of the future to benefit. Uh, why, why? Why would? Why would that? Doesn't? Yeah, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> Everyone says it differently. I mean, if you yeah, but I mean, future, but I mean, I, I mean, the point is that we keep talking about the fact that we have to build these portfolios of unknowns, right, to deal with these unknowns yeah. because the real crisis is never priced in, right? It's a real crisis because nobody anticipated it. Well, if I have that knowledge of what happens in the future, I'm going to go and selling my treasuries and buy some uh, <laughs> hot stocks. Uh, uh, a week is a long a week is a long time, isn't it? Like if you really oh, stop man. and think about it, and I'm leveraging it like fifty to one. I'm going to call our Kikos guys. Oh man, it's gonna be you can't awesome. even get accounts set up in a week. <laughs> <laughs> Settlement, settlement, settlement is all wrong. I mean, oh, you know, you so go to good. the past, it's T plus so five. The, I, guess, I guess the question is, do, do you have material non-public information? They won't know that, right? So, yeah. Guys, I'm from I've the got, future. I'm from the future. I'm going to buy this some is- stuff. I have material non-public information because I'm from the future. I just want you to know that in advance. Yeah. <laughs> Forward to the past. Yeah. I love it. Forward to the past. Yeah. There you go. All right, gentlemen. Well, that was great. Mark, thank yeah, you Mark. very much for your time. Yeah. I hope it works. Thank you, Mark. Looking for. So thanks very much. It was awesome. That was awesome, okay. Mark. It, you know what? I, lo- I, I love hanging out with you because you've always got so much to share. You've got the pulse on so many different angles in the market and aspects of the market. So thank you so much. It's just, it's been uh, time well spent. I'm really enjoying this series, man. You got the right guys, the resolve guys, man. So it's it's always fun listening to, to the picture there. So it's been a good series. So I'm just really honored to be invited. Thanks very much.